In 1521, at the Diet of Worms, Martin Luther was asked to recant his writings. Luther responded, Unless I am convinced from the sacred scriptures that I am in error, I cannot and will not recant. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Will you stand with us as we proclaim these Reformation truths in the 21st century? You can take your stand by becoming a monthly or annual contributor to Issues Etc. Find out the benefits of becoming an Issues Etc. confessor, apologist, reformer, or patron on the Support Donate page at issuesetc.org. Click the picture of Martin Luther posting the 95 Theses. Help us proclaim the solas of the Reformation. Scripture, faith, grace, and Christ alone. Here we stand, Issues Etc. and you. The new left has consistently been anti-humane since the 1960s, and I think they want so deeply to remake the human person in their image that they're willing to run over acres and acres of bodies to get there. You wouldn't tell someone in 1860s U.S. who's fighting for abolition, oh, don't be a culture warrior. No, you'd say that's great. It's good that we should be fighting against the abomination of slavery. But in the same way, you also wouldn't want them to ignore spiritual reality only for the sake of anything political. One of the things that is perhaps becoming more and more obvious in our contemporary context is an awful lot of people who have perhaps sat in church every Sunday of their lives do not always know what God considers pleasing. So our prayer for Israel is not only that the war that is currently ravaging that region would come to an end, but we pray that their war against the Messiah would be brought to an end so that they can be grafted back into the olive tree that they were broken off of because of their unbelief. Colorado trumpet players love issues, etc. In the 11th place, the word of God is not rightly divided when the gospel is turned into a preaching of repentance. That word gospel is used in scripture in at least two senses, one narrow, the other broader. We'll find out what those are as we continue our series on the distinction between law and gospel. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. live on this Monday afternoon, the 16th of October. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Our series on the distinction between law and gospel continues with Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. We're going to be spending some time after that with Tim Gagline. He's Vice President of Governmental and External Relations at Focus on the Family of Washington, D.C. We'll talk about the woke war on history. It's usually manifest when you hear people talking about taking down statues of figures like George Washington. Then we'll discuss Martin Luther's insights into mental illness, the first part of the conversation with Dr. Stephen Saunders, author of The Issues, Etc., Book of the Month for October, Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians Today. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois. He formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He's author of the books, Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands, and he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. You wanted to begin with some questions yeah. and comments from our listeners. Yeah, because we had a couple of uh, people write in last time after we did our previous show that, that were concerned that when they heard Walter talk about sin against conscience, that 
they know many times in their life they've sinned against their conscience. They've done something that they know they shouldn't have done. And they're afraid that what was Walter saying, that my goodness, if you have one of these moments where, I don't know, say you're in a car and your kids do something really naughty and you turn around and yell at them and then you all die in a car wreck. At that moment, did you go to hell because you were yelling at your kids in the car? Or similarly, you've got some sort of a habitual sin that just keeps trying to nag at you, a besetting sin. It wants to, to grab hold of you. And you you keep fighting it. But like uh like say say alcoholism. And then one day though, you 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 actually are, are you succumb to the temptation, you give in and you die while while you're while you're plastered. Does that mean that uh, you're gonna go to hell? And I think that is very much to mishear what Walter was saying. So my answer to those concerns, the two people wrote almost the exact same concern in. I want to say, by sin against conscience, Walter is not talking about you losing your temper with someone right before the car wreck and then dying. And he's not talking about, or rather he is talking about embracing a sin in such a way that you say, hey, I know God disapproves of this. And you know what? I just don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. So if you know it's a sin to abuse alcohol for the purposes of getting drunk, but you struggle against the temptation to drink, and sometimes you fail to win, but each time you fail, you head right back to God in repentance and you seek his forgiveness. That is not sinning against your conscience, the way Walter was talking about it. But if you know that it's a sin to abuse alcohol and yet cheerfully get plastered every night because you kind of like being drunk and you just don't care what God says about that, that is a sin against your conscience. So I hope that's of some help. Beyond shadow of doubt, folks, we remain sinners, and each day we fall many times, and many times we end up doing something that we know we ought not to do. But such sin cannot finally hurt you when you hate it, when you long to be free of it, and when by the power of God's Holy Spirit you struggle against it. So I hope that addresses the question. So... Walter begins his 26th evening lecture by talking about a distinction between believers and ministers. He says, <laughs> for the believer, faith is indispensable. For the minister, faith is indispensable, but there needs to be more. What's he yeah. talking about? He says it's not sufficient because, you know, it's not enough for a minister of the gospel to believe correctly. There must also be, in addition to faith, the ability to express in the proper terms the things that must be believed. You know, if you're going to teach, this is why this is why Paul said, if you look at all of the requisites that Paul lists out for the office of the ministry in First Timothy and also in Titus, there's really one that sort of sticks out that's just different from general Christians, and that's the aptitude to teach. He must be apt to teach. So that's what, what Walter is honing in on right here. You need, if you're going to be a minister of the gospel, you need to be able to actually proclaim in their proper order the truths of God, which brings salvation to mankind. And he wants you especially, and he sort of sums it up a little later at the back of his intro, where he says, you know, these two things are required of you then. He's talking to the seminarians. The same doctrine in the same terms and the same mind and judgment. In other words, 
you're speaking according to the, the what we call the analogy of faith, the, the proper way of speaking about the faith, the one handed down in Scripture, the one we have as Lutherans that's been beautifully summarized for us in our Lutheran confessions, and that we're then teaching these truths with the same mind and judgment, that I'm not using the words but meaning something different by them. We're saying the same thing, meaning the same thing. That's the thing he says is required of every pastor. And then he gets on into the next thesis. I, I do want to entertain the fact mm-hmm. that he he says, you know, you, you're going to be studying really hard as seminarians. You'll get a lot done in three years, but it's not going to be enough, Mm-mm. even when we send you out as pastor. Absolutely. I mean, one of the great truths that, well, I always got irritated when I was a pastor in a parish and, and I'd hear a district president go on and on and on and on about the importance of continuing education because... <laughs> what they meant was you needed to go pay someone and take a class somewhere and do that. I don't think that's what Walter was driving at. What Walter was driving at is you're never done learning. You know, you've got to keep on learning and studying the scriptures and growing in your knowledge of them. This is not something that any of us can sort of hang up our hat and say, well, got that down, done now. Anybody that's had the most modicum of exposure to the scriptures knows how inexhaustibly rich they are, and you just cannot come to the end of them. So as we dig in and study the scripture, and especially as the Lutheran theologians in the 16th century especially encourage pastors to put their, as you're studying each passage, you need to be able to assign it to its proper locus. You know, where does it belong in theology? Is this a passage about grace? Is this a passage about mercy? You know, you just store them up. What Dr. Nagel used to call bucket theology, right? Like you put the bucket grace and then the label grace on the bucket, and then you just dump into it every scripture passage that proclaims the free gift of God in Jesus Christ. There's grace. That's your grace bucket. And you do that with every doctrine of the scripture, and you just keep on doing that. You're never going to get your bucket completely full because, you know, there's always going to be further insights that come along. In the 11th place, the word of God is not rightly divided when the gospel is turned into a preaching of repentance. How does Walter take that one apart? Well, he, he's going to, to deal with it by pointing out that we have a problem when we are not careful with how we are using two different words, the word repentance and the word gospel. And his point is that both words have what we would call a broader and then a narrower or stricter sense. And he's very concerned here that if you take the word Well, let's go through some of the broad and narrow so we sort of get a feeling of what he means by that. The broad sense of the word gospel or of repentance, let's do repentance first. He kind of moves that way first. In Acts 2.38, Peter says, repent and be baptized. And he says, this is clearly the wide sense of repentance. It's conversion in its entirety that's being meant by the word repent. And sometimes the word repentance does indeed reach out that way and grabs the whole thing. It means the whole thing. Other times, it's actually heartfelt sorrow for sin, that you realize you're a sinner and that you realize you can't do anything about it and you cry to God. This is contrition. This is repentance in its narrow sense. Similarly with the gospel. The gospel can be used in a very, very broad way to describe everything that has to do with how a person is saved. The classic example of this is when Melanchthon in the Apology to the Augsburg Confession says in Article 12, Paragraph 29, the sum of the gospel is this, to convict of sin, to offer 
for Christ's sake, the forgiveness of sins and righteousness, the Holy Spirit and eternal life, and that reborn people, as reborn people, we should do good works. So here, Melanchthon's just piled a whole bunch of both law and gospel into the term gospel. That's because the word gospel there is being used in its broadest sense to basically describe the teaching of Christ himself. So Walter says it's not only extremely dangerous, it's actually harmful to the souls of men for a minister to preach in such a manner as to lead men to believe that he regards the gospel in its narrow and proper sense as the preaching of the law and the anger of God against sinners and calling them to repentance. In other words, if you were to put it in the tone of how you preach it, it would be like, I am preaching the gospel to you, you ungrateful wretch. You know, that, 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 that is to uh, be confounding the law and the gospel in the way that he's describing here in this particular thesis. He summarized this so, so absolutely beautifully at the end. He said, when proclaiming the gospel, you must not present it with a black cloud hovering over it, but proclaim the free grace and unconditional consolation. He says, look, when we're in the agony of death, we got to have a sound cable that we can take hold of, you know, an anchor that holds. We must know that what we grasp is not the law. The law is not going to do the job in that moment. And then he points out this distinction between the broad and the narrow. It is nothing new. This is something which the Lutheran symbols themselves recognized and taught. So he turned especially to the epitome in Article 5, and he quotes just a few things from there. The term gospel is not used in one and the same sense in the Holy Scriptures. That's why this disagreement originally arose. Therefore, we believe, teach, and confess that if the term gospel is understood to mean Christ's entire teaching that he proposed in his ministry, as the apostles did also, this is how it's used in Mark 1.15 or Acts 20.21, 20, then it is correctly said and written that the gospel is a preaching of repentance and of the forgiveness of sins. The law and the gospel are also contrasted with each other. Likewise, also, Moses himself as a teacher of the law and Christ as a preacher of the gospel are contrasted with each other, John 1.17. In these cases, we believe, teach, and confess that the gospel is not a preaching of repentance or rebuke, but it is properly nothing other than a preaching of consolation and a joyful message that does not rebuke or terrify. The gospel comforts consciences against the terrors of the law, points only to Christ's merit, and raises them up again by the lovely preaching of God's grace and favor gained through Christ's merit. We reject and regard it as incorrect and harmful. The teaching that the gospel, strictly speaking, is a preaching of repentance or of rebuke, and not just a preaching of grace. For by this misuse, the gospel is converted into the teaching of the law, Christ's merit and the Holy Scriptures are hidden, Christians are robbed of true consolation, and the door is open again to the errors and superstitions of the papacy. So there he gets it right. He gets right at it from the, uh, the Lutheran confessions themselves. And he sort of wraps up that entire uh, lecture with the point. So when you're reading the scriptures, you need to be able to tell whether the term gospel in a given passage is intended in the wide or in the strict sense. And you must be particularly careful to find the passages 
where it's used in the latter meaning. Find the passages where gospel is defined strictly. They will deliver to you the gold. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's our series, Distinguishing Between Law and Gospel, when we come back. The 27th evening lecture, he wants to say, All mankind you know is distributed among three estates, appointed and ordained by God himself, the estate of teachers, of producers, and defenders. Why he begins this way, we'll find out next. Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the Support Donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Hi, my name is Rahima Kavuga, Director of Synod Relations at Lutheran Church Extension Fund. We serve the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and your investment with LCEF makes a world of difference. Your dollars enable LCMS churches, schools, and workers to access low-cost loans for vital ministries. Join us today at lcef.org, and let's empower faith, strengthen ministries, and build a stronger LCMS community together. Education and edification. You're listening to Issues Etc. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Have you ever wondered about some of the more difficult topics or teachings of Scripture, such as what does the Bible say about polygamy or slavery or the free will, or what about law and gospel? The October issue of The Lutheran Witness is a twin to the August 2022 issue, and it takes up some of these difficult teachings of Scripture and explains them in detail. To get your copy, visit cph.org witness or the Lutheran Witness website witness.lsms.org. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest, host of the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. It's part 15 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Well, he starts the 27th lecture by discussing the superiority, or he actually says the most glorious estate of all that of the teachers, especially the teachers of the Word of God. Yeah, he starts out dividing these things. I love the German there. You have a Lehrstand, that's a teaching office, a teaching order almost, you could say. Then there's the Nährstand, a nurturing office. I think uh, he mentioned as translated here as a producer basically a domestic office. It has to do with the, with the home. And then, of course, the Verstand. Think of the government and especially the military. Uh, Ver has about it the, uh, the defending, you know, the defense of the realm. So he sees in 
in the government and in the, uh, the, the house, household life, the domestic life, divinely instituted realms of authority. But then there's also this teaching realm, and he does indeed crown it as the most glorious of all, especially when it's the teaching of the very word of God itself. And he tries to say why it's most glorious. He says, well, number one, the work of their office centers on man's spiritual welfare, his immortal soul. So it's concerning the most precious thing of all there. Number two, they employ the most salutary means and instrument in their work. Namely, what they deal with is the word of the living God. Number three, they aim at the most salutary and glorious end. Namely, to make men truly happy in the present life and to lead them into the life of eternal bliss. Number four, they are most wholesomely engaged in an occupation which entirely satisfies their spirits and advances their own selves in the way of salvation. In other words, when they help others, they're really helping themselves too. When you preach to others, you're really preaching to yourself first. And then uh, five, their labor yields the most precious result, namely the salvation of man. Six, their labors have the most glorious promise of the operation of the Lord so that they are never entirely futile or in vain. And then number seven, their labors have the promise of a gracious reward, which consists in a glory in the world to come that's unutterably great and exceedingly abundant above all that they could ever have asked or prayed for in this life. So he's like, when you stop and think about it, I know that the world doesn't think much of you preachers and the job that you do. But what you're doing is really the most glorious and wonderful thing of all the orders that God has established, because yours is the only one that's focused 100% entirely on the eternal salvation of man. He also says regarding that, for all that is recorded concerning them in the Holy Scriptures does not equal the greatness of the office of teachers, all these other offices. It doesn't equal the greatness of the office of teachers and preachers, in which men become helpers in the task of bringing fallen creatures back to their creator, back to their God. Without a doubt, these rescued people will forever and ever thank those by whose ministry they were saved from perdition and brought into life everlasting. So that's just a beautiful reflection on the preaching office meant to give them some encouragement as they go about the task, a task that the world thinks is pretty useless, but that we know in the in the sight of God and, and in his plan and purpose is actually the greatest office of all. He then wants to uh, return to several objections to the thesis that he has laid out, that the gospel is not a preaching of repentance. What's the first one? Uh, the first one he comes to is that scripture itself calls the gospel a law. Hence, the gospel may be considered a preaching of repentance because the law serves the purpose of leading men to repentance. So where does scripture say that? Well, he turns to Romans 3.27, and there you do indeed read, well, what then becomes of boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of a law? A law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So according to the apostles' own terminology, the objectors say that, well, then the gospel is a law too. Walter just beautifully demolishes that. He goes, that's drawing a faulty inference from the apostle's words. The apostle in this passage employs the figure of antanaclasis. He uses the same word which his opponents had used, however, with a different meaning to refute the opponent. So to illustrate, he says, when the Jews from a self-righteous motive ask Christ, so what should we do that we might do the works of God? Remember that in John 6? 
Look, Jesus answers, well, this is the work of God. Then you believe in him whom he has sent. Well, they had misunderstood the term work of God, which the Lord had used, imagining he was referring to works which man must do to please God. Christ retains the term, but he employs it in an entirely different meaning. He means to say, works don't save a person, but doing no works for the purpose of achieving some merit, relying solely on Christ as redeemer and his grace, that, that alone is what saves. Hence, a person is made righteous in the sight of God by what he receives from God. But he still used the figure of speech, works, that we use in ordinary life. He says, when a son has been slovenly in his work and comes to his father and impudently asks for his wages, the father will say, indeed, I'll give you your wages with a rod. The simplest people make use of this figure of speech. It's a similar manner, he said. Death is sometimes called the wages of sin. Now, death is not really a premium that God has put on sin. Again, the Lord, we are told in Matthew 24, verse 51, will appoint to the evil servant his portion with the hypocrites, where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So his point is, you're not going to be able to prove from Romans 3, 27, that the gospel is turned into a preaching of repentance. Only a person who is not conversant with rhetoric will cite this passage for proof. So it's a beautiful point there. I mean, we do this all the time. He gives several examples of it. And so Paul is using the word law of faith in an almost ironic sense, just using the word law there to uh, sort of goad his opponents. Another objection that he entertains is based on Romans ten sixteen, where the apostle says they have not all obeyed the gospel. Yeah. He says, it's argued that since it really is the law which enjoins obedience, the gospel is not merely a message of joy, but it's really an improved law. He says, this is an utter perversion of the text to try to prove from it that the gospel in the strict sense is a preaching to repentance. We are to obey the will of God, not only as expressed in the law, but also his gracious will. But the latter is not a will of the law. By his gracious will, God offers and gives us all things. If we accept what he gives, we are said to obey him. And then Walter says, I just love this. It's an act of kindness on God's part to call it obedience. You know, it's like when you're starving to death and you stumble into a house where a feast has been prepared and the host of the house looks at you and says, sit down, eat. Or as the Italians like to say, manja, you know, eat up and say, oh, I will obey you. I will go do that. Well, it is an obedience because you were invited to do it, but it's much more the reception of a kind invitation on the part of the person who receives it. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's part 15 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. We will get to the 28th evening lecture next. week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we are rolling right along in our adventures in Acts with Festus shares with Agrippa, Paul brought before Agrippa, Paul's defense before Agrippa, Paul's conversion yet again, and not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org 
or your favorite podcast provider. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. This is Kevin Hildebrand, cantor at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, inviting you to our campus in November for the annual Good Shepherd Institute Conference, November 5th through 7th. This year's conference includes addresses by Brian Spinks, Paul Grimm, and James Busher, and there's excellent music, including a Bach cantata with the Seminary Contarai and a hymn festival at St. Paul's Lutheran Church. For complete details, visit ctsfw.edu slash GSI. The weather is changing, the leaves are falling, and you'll soon be setting up your church's Christmon tree this Advent. But there's a problem. Remember, Aunt Mabel's Christmons are from the 80s. They're made of styrofoam, the glitter has dropped off, and they're being held together with toothpicks. Rush on over to Ad Crucem to fix the situation. We offer all the old designs and a whole lot of new ones. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Lutheran. It's not a label. It's a confession. You're listening to Issues Etc. Silicon Valley is a place of cutting-edge innovation which radically changes lives, where science fiction is already in research and development. In the heart of this digital chaos is a sanctuary of constancy and reverence, Hope Lutheran in Fremont, where nothing is new under the California sun, where the timeless gospel is proclaimed and the sacrament is celebrated with the historic liturgy that truly changes lives. And thanks to Silicon Valley, you may find us on the web at hopelutheranfremont.org. At Memoria Press, the Simply Classical curriculum is specifically designed for students with significant learning challenges. This complete program includes everything you need for a school, self-contained classroom, tutoring, or homeschool to make a classical Christian education accessible for any child. To learn more, visit us at simplyclassical.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel with Pastor Will Whedon. He's host of the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Folks, if you're enjoying our law and gospel series with Pastor Whedon, please consider joining the Issues Etc. Reformation Club. It's a group of faithful listeners who pledge to support this worldwide outreach monthly or annually. Membership benefits include books, shirts, broadcast transcripts, and advertising for your confessional Lutheran church. Learn more about becoming an Issues Etc. confessor, apologist, reformer, or patron on the support donate page at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Reformation Club. So, Will, before we move on to the next lecture, you wanted to point something out that Walther says here about the Lutheran Church being distinct from every other church in that it preaches a pure atonement. And redemption. 
Yeah. And actually, I want to back up just just a smidge before we get to that quote, because the context is really important. He tells the, the, the men there in front of him, he says, adopt this principle for your activity in your congregation, always to proclaim this glad message from your pulpit so that your congregation will rejoice in having a pastor who is a true evangelist, a true preacher of the good news. Do not follow your reason which will tell you that by preaching the gospel to your hearers, you're going to make them secure. It's not so. On the contrary, when the grace and the glory of the gospel are really held out to men, it rouses them. It makes them joyful and therefore willing to do good works. And as it were, it kindles a heavenly fire in their hearts. He goes, and of course, it goes without saying, the law must continually be preached, lest the hearers become surfeited so that the gospel doesn't benefit them. But then he adds that comment that you alluded to. You may be assured that the Lutheran Church is distinct from all others by the fact that it preaches a perfect redemption and hence does not represent faith as a work, but merely as the receiving hand by which the sinner accepts the gifts of God. Furthermore, that it invites all sinners who are alarmed over their sins, no matter how abominable their conduct may have been, to come, for all things are ready for them. The reason why our church also has the true doctrine of the sacraments is that it teaches the true doctrine of salvation by grace alone. It's a beautiful statement there about why Lutherans are so confident in even the means of grace. That the, the you know why how can how can you be sure that you give baptism to a baby? Because God does this. He's always giving gifts to those who are dead and calling them to life with the gifts He gives. So where does He go from there? So we're going to move into the well. It's now May 15th. Remember, it was uh, in the fall when we started this thing. So it's May 15th, 1885. And Walter sort of introduces the next section by encouraging his seminarians to not become lackadaisical in their sermon writing, but to actually be with fear and trembling when they go to handle the word of God and then stand in front of the congregation to proclaim that word. And he finally then gets to his next thesis, which is thesis number 16. He says in the 12th place, the word of God is not rightly divided. When the preacher tries to make people believe that they're truly converted as soon as they have become rid of certain vices and engage in certain works of piety and virtuous practices. So he says the great importance of this thesis becomes apparent when you reflect that a worse commingling of law and gospel than that which is censored in this thesis is not possible. So th- that, that by itself is worth noting. Walter thinks this is the absolute worst commingling of law and gospel that can take place, is when you make people believe that they're truly converted by some positive change in their behavior, where they drop some vice or add in some work of piety or some virtue. He says it's just the grossest form of commingling law and gospel. And he says it's really the, 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 he lays it at the feet of the rationalists to whom Christianity had no more use than to make you be a better person, right? That, that's how the rationalists, they did not picture Christianity as living in the blessed communion, which Jesus opens up to us through the Holy Spirit with the blessed Trinity. That's not on their radar screen. It's all about how might you become a more decent human being? So, he said, the, the rationalists love to cite the well-known statement, genuine repentance is to quit doing what you've been doing. <laughs> there it is. They meant to say, you people who boast of having the right faith while you lead wicked lives, 
you hush your prating about faith, quitting what you have been doing, that's genuine repentance. So he says, this is really an, an abominable teaching. And as proof, he kind of goes to uh, this analogy that, that runs through uh, a number of places in the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament. He's like, look, <laughs> you got to become a different kind of tree. The problem is the kind of tree you are. So he goes to John 3, verse 3 first. Remember the story of Nicodemus and Nicodemus telling Jesus, hey, man, I know you're a teacher. I know you come from God. Nobody can do the kind of things you're doing unless God is with him. And Jesus just looks at the man and says, look, you need to be born again. If you're not born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. So with that kind of, of an introduction, you know, he says, you can see Nicodemus's face just fall. And, and Jesus says, you're trying to, to, to butter me up, to, to curry my favor with flattery. But look, you're still in your old mind. You're not going to make it to heaven. You have to have a different mind. You have to be born again. And, and Nicodemus reveals that, that he really hasn't been born again when he says, how can I do that? How can a man be born when he is old? You know, you expect him to crawl up into his mother's womb and be born? And the Lord repeats his previous statement, but he, he makes it a little bigger, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, except a person is born of water and the spirit, he's not going to enter. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is just flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Walter says, the Lord meant to say, all that you undertake to do while still in your carnal nature is just sin. You've got to become spiritual before you can produce spiritual fruits, which will begin to show themselves in your life. Matthew 12, verse 31, Jesus said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by its fruits. Walter exposits that with, well, if you plant a good tree, like an apple tree, it will bear good fruit. If you plant a corrupt tree, say a crab apple tree, it will bear corrupt fruit. It's going to bear crab apples. Um, he says, this means unless a person is completely changed, unless he's become a new creature, has been born anew, has a new mind, all his doings will be only corrupt fruit. For by nature, every man is a corrupt tree. He turns to Matthew 15, verse 13, where Jesus said, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted is going to be rooted up. And he says, those works which God has wrought, they are good and only they are good. And any work which a person produces by the power of his own reason and natural will is a plant that's not going to make it. The father is going to root it up. It's going to be pulled down. So he says, true Christians know full well and don't need to be told that this is so. No matter what they do, even if it was a very beautiful performance of something that God says, they're aware that it was not right since they did not do it completely from love of God and their fellow men, but in a mechanical fashion or because they wished to show off their Christianity, a Christian is really quick to discern whether any work of his has been planted by God or by Adam. Any person unable to discern this, Walter says, has not really experienced metanoia, a change of heart. I mean, you've all had, you know you've had this happen, right? <laughs> you're, 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 you see the person begging on the street and, and you, you have the 20 bucks in your pocket, whatever, you roll down your, your window, you hand it over, and, 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 and as you roll back up the window and drive away, what are you doing? You're saying, hey, look at that. Aren't I a pretty good guy? I, 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 I gave that, 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 that beggar there on the corner $20. 
And with the pride in what you've done, you immediately spoil any fruit that comes from it. A Christian knows that that's always going to be there. And so we always look at, we know that that the best that we can do, we're going to have to beg God for forgiveness for, right? Dr. Nagel's famous statement, what makes a good work a good work, the fact that God forgives it. Similarly, Walter points to Jeremiah chapter 4. Thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. And he says, that's a remarkable declaration. We know it's meaning well enough. Sowing wheat into ungrubbed land, soil will be covered with brushwood. It's not going to yield any harvest worthwhile. You have to first clear the ground. You got to remove the scrub growth and cut down the trees and at least thin the forest sufficiently to give the sprouting seed the necessary air. This is a picturesque description of conversion. A person must first be given a new heart in conversion. And in this new heart, the seed of every good work may then begin to be sown. He turns to uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3. Even though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and give my body to be burned, if I don't have love, it doesn't profit me anything. He says, this remarkable passage has a direct bearing on our thesis. Because what is all important are not these works themselves, but the love from which they proceed. I may be so abjectly poor that I am not able to do anything, and yet in God's estimate, I may abound in good works if, while I'm suffering poverty according to the will of God, love awakens in me and the desire to do good to other people. God takes the will for the deed. That is such a beautiful statement. God takes the will for the deed. And he just says, pastors, even believing pastors may slip into this horrible mingling of law and gospel if they're not careful, and especially in their private ministrations and in the exercise of church discipline. So he gives an example. Many pastors and congregations, they make this mistake. He says, they may be dealing with a drunkard who readily professes sorrow over his sins, as these people usually do. An inexperienced minister is easily deceived by such a profession. The drunkard may be suspended from church membership and placed under surveillance for three months. And presently, some brother brings the good news that the drunkard has kept himself sober the whole time. And the minister decides that, well, now the drunkard is converted. While in reality, he could still be quite a godless person. He says, don't fall for this. The same may happen with a habitually profane person who's been admonished by the congregation and quits cursing for a while. Or he says, take the case of a person who's negligent in church attendance, who certainly is then not a Christian, and yet they've been brought before the congregation and they so come to church for, what, several successive Sundays, and this outward act alone makes them a Christian? He says, by no means, by no means. The aforementioned persons must be made to realize that no Christian acts like them. If he does, he can't possibly be in a state of grace but it requires labor on the part of the minister till these persons are reborn by the word of God. And if the pastor is unwilling to perform this labor, he neglects the souls of such persons. He uses another common example from our church. What do you do with the tardy communicants who just come to the sacrament every once and again after the pastor's gotten after them for not coming more often? And he says, look, if you're satisfied with that, you're guilty of mingling law and gospel. And he gives another example. If congregation is stingy and 
not actually taking care of the pastor itself. You, you don't solve that by preaching to the congregation on their duty to take care of the pastor. He says, that doesn't, you know, opening purses by means of the law is no achievement at all. You got to preach in a manner that will rouse them out of their spiritual sleep and death. And he says, if you don't do that, you fall under the censure of this 16th thesis. And then he has a long, long quote from Luther going into uh, how uh, he, he expounds that regarding Nicodemus. We're talking with Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. It's part 15 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Another thesis, thesis 27, is next. In the 13th place, the Word of God is not rightly divided. When a description is given of faith, both as regards its strength and the consciousness and productiveness of it, that it does not fit all believers at all times. Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians Today, is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October. It's written by Lutheran layman Dr. Stephen Saunders, professor of psychology at Marquette University. Martin Luther on Mental Health is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or learn more at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October, Martin Luther on Mental Health. This fallen creation is bested by tornado, hurricane, flood, pandemic, and more. LCMS Disaster Response helps our congregations, their pastors, and other church workers to reach out to their members and neighbors with mercy, which flows from Christ to altar. We offer quality volunteer training, help for congregational readiness and response, and disaster grant funding. To learn more, visit lcms.org disaster. That's lcms.org disaster. Sanctifying your insomnia with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. Concordia University Chicago invites all high school students to attend the annual Careers for Christ weekend in person on our beautiful campus in River Forest. Careers for Christ is November 3rd through the 5th. You'll have the opportunity to learn about professional church vocations while having fun with CUC staff, faculty, and students. For more information, visit cuchicago.edu forward slash C, the number four C. That is cuchicago.edu forward slash C, the number four C. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest, part 15 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Will, this next thesis is a little more subtle, and he's kind of been going along in a pretty straightforward manner, but here he's saying the preacher should not describe faith in any respect so that it doesn't look like all believers at all times. What 
point is he trying to make there? It's really a very beautiful point. He says this is a mistake which young pastors especially are tempted to make. They want to rouse their people and warn them against self-destruction. However, that can't be their ultimate aim. He says your ultimate aim has got to be to lead your hearers to the assurance that they have forgiveness of sins with God. The hope of the future, blessed life, and confidence to meet death cheerfully. That's where you want to lead them. That's your ultimate aim if you are a preacher of the gospel. And in fact, this becomes really difficult for your people if you were to stand in the pulpit and say, no true Christian, this is the example he gives in, uh, you know, in the lecture, no true Christian is ever afraid of death. Walter says, you can't say that. You cannot say something like that because it's not true for all Christians at all times. And he doesn't have any problem with you pointing to some heroic Christians in the way that they met death. I mean, hey, the great story of, of, of uh, you know, Polycarp, it's, it's, it's a beautiful story of, of, you know, he's like, bring on the fire. You know, he's, he's not afraid. And so when you hear the great story like that, it's fine to be encouraged by it, but it's totally wrong for you to say, so if you're a real Christian, that's how you're going to feel about death. You have to have this same scorn of death that everyone must have. So he just warns against that kind of thing. Or another example he gives is, you know, if, if, if you're a true Christian, you're going to be reading that Bible every day. You're going to be devouring the word of God. And it, it, yes, we want to encourage people all the time to be in the word. It's, it is a wonderful gift from God. We don't ever want to do anything against that. But you just can't make a statement like that because that's going to arouse inside of some people this horrible sneaking suspicion that maybe they're not a true Christian at all because heaven forbid they forgot to open the word of God three times last week on, 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 on different days. You, you got to watch against statements like that. Walter just basically saying, preach in such a way that you describe faith that holds for all believers of all times and not just focus on these uh, really uh, heroic cases that are beautiful examples to hold up as an example, but that you simply cannot say, this is how every true Christian must act. So what other scriptures does he cite to make this point? He, he actually gives you a whole pile of them. He starts with Romans 7. We know the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. He means to say, who wouldn't be glad to get rid of sin? But as for me, I'm like a slave sold to a master. I can't get away from it. I keep on being tyrannized by him. And Walter says, hey, that's the condition of a Christian. He feels like a slave with this difference, however, that he does not obey his master gladly as a Christian slave must obey. He renders obedience with utmost reluctance. And Walter comes back to this thought again. The prevailing spiritual malady of our time is lack of assurance on the part of Christians. That's because they're not given any reliable teaching. He says, now when a real Christian is shown what a miserable sinner he is, he just clings to Christ all the more firmly and spurns the whispering of the devil who tells him that he's fallen from grace and lost God. As Luther would say, I got a lot of sin, but he's got a lot more salvation. Philippians 3, verse 12. Not as though I've already attained this, either I am already perfect, but I follow after, that I may apprehend the life for which I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. So 
Paul himself is really clear. I'm not perfect. I have not achieved perfection. I'm not going to achieve perfection in this life. And this is really aimed against, especially the teaching of Methodism in the 18th, 19th centuries that focus so much upon achieving a perfection, a sinless perfection here in this world. Galatians 5 verse 17, the flesh, it lusts, it desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to each other so that you cannot do the things that you would. So if you picture the Christian life without the struggle of the flesh lusting against the spirit, you've given a false depiction of what a real Christian life is like. Real Christian life is a struggle. He turns to James chapter 3, verse 2, for in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Walter says, he means to say there's no such thing as a perfect man. And by the use of the pronoun we, he's including himself, all the apostles, all the saints in this estimate. A Christian sins, not only in thoughts, desires, gestures, and words, but also in his actions, which makes it evident to the whole world that he is still a poor, weak man. You know, he turns to Hebrews 12 and Isaiah 64, a whole bunch of other passages that he's just hammering home. But the one that sort of closes it out for him is Job 14, verse 4, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. We can't fix this. With only a minute, he says to the preachers, when you draw a picture of a Christian in your preaching, check to see if it looks like you. Yeah. In essence, about a minute for your thoughts there. Yeah, that, that's exactly how he does it. I mean, one more quote from real quick along that lines. He says, if you're going to preach on the blessed state of a Christian, he says, don't you forget that the blessedness of Christians does not consist in pleasant feelings, but in their assurance that in spite of the bitterest feelings imaginable, they're accepted with God. And in their dying hour, they're going to be received into heaven. He says, now that is true blessedness. If you're preaching about the blessedness of a Christian, he says, make sure that you make it fit this truth. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the book, Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands, and he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Pastor Whedon is teaching this week on Paul before Agrippa and Bernice, Paul's defense before Agrippa, and Paul tells of his conversion in Acts chapters 25 and 26, Listen anywhere, anytime at thewordendures.org, the LPR mobile app, or your favorite podcast provider. The Word of the Lord Endures Forever with Pastor Will Whedon. Will, thank you very much. Thank you, Todd. In Hour 2 of Issues Etc., Tim Gagline joins us to talk about the woke war on history, and we'll discuss Martin Luther's insights on mental illness with Dr. Stephen Saunders. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. This is Pastor Tyler Arnold of Village Lutheran Church in Ladue, Missouri. The Saints at Village are proud to be an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. If you are in the St. Louis area, join us for the Divine Service at 8.15 or 10.45 a.m., Bible Study and Sunday School at 9.30 a.m., 
as we receive Christ's promise of salvation and forgiveness through word and sacrament. You can find us at villagelutheranchurch.org. Village Lutheran in St. Louis welcomes you. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com.